Let's read the word of God this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read the first 25 verses of the chapter. In this part of the epistle, the apostle begins to transition from the primarily doctrinal part into the primarily practical part of the epistle. And we'll see that as he starts to issue exhortations, and especially the exhortation regarding prayer. Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then... Would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And now he really begins to enter into some practical exhortation. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. 
And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. We're going to read that far this morning. And let's consider, again, Lord's Day 45 of the Heidelberg Catechism. This morning we focus on question and answer 117. What are the requisites of that prayer which is acceptable to God and which he will hear? First, that we from the heart pray to the one true God only who hath manifested himself in his word. For all things he hath commanded us to ask of him. Secondly, that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery, that so we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of his divine majesty. Thirdly, that we be fully persuaded that he, notwithstanding that we are unworthy of it, will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, Certainly, hear our prayer, as he has promised us in his word. Just that much this morning. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw last Sunday, and as we heard this morning in that exhortation of the Apostle, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, by which he means to say, let us draw near to God in prayer. We have seen that prayer is necessary for Christians. And last time we saw that prayer is necessary for Christians, first of all, because it is the chief part of our thankfulness that God requires of us as his children. And secondly, because God is pleased to give his grace and Holy Spirit to us in the way of prayer. That leads us this morning to the question, what then are God's requirements for prayer? What does God require of us, his children, when it comes to prayer, when we pray to him? How would God have us to pray? The question of the catechism is, what are the requisites or the requirements of that prayer which is acceptable to God and which he will hear? Now, from a certain point of view, when you hear that question, you think, well, doesn't God hear every prayer? And of course, that's true. To a certain point of view, that's true. It's somewhat like the difference between hearing and listening. We all know that a mother hears lots of requests from her children. Her children bring requests to her. She hears every request, that is, if it enters into her ears. But she doesn't listen to all of them. She ignores many of them. She doesn't grant all of them. And then she will grant certain of them. 
God hears every single prayer that is offered on the face of the earth. Every prayer that has ever been offered by any person at any time and in any religion. He hears. As the Lord says in Matthew 12, verse 36, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Every single little word, including every single prayer that has ever been spoken, God hears. But is God pleased with every single prayer? Will God listen to every prayer? Will he grant every prayer? The answer to that, of course, is no. Certainly not. In fact, there are many prayers that are made that are an abomination to God. There are many prayers that God hates. But when I say that this morning to you, as a congregation of believers in Jesus Christ, that ought not to frighten us, and that ought not to discourage us in our prayer life. And I say that because of what we read in Hebrews chapter 10. God has sent his Son into this world. The Lord Jesus Christ has come and shed his blood on the cross for us and then ascended to the right hand of God, and that's where he sits, in order to make a new and living way through the veil, that is to say, through his own flesh, into the Holy of Holies, into the most holy place. Christ, whom we serve, whom we love, whom we trust, has made a way for us to pray. And that's why the Apostle says, having boldness, therefore, having boldness, not fear, not doubt, but boldness, let us draw near, because that's what prayer is, drawing near to God, drawing into the presence of God, by faith, and let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Let's consider God's requirements for prayer this morning. Notice, first of all, God requires that we pray from the heart to him alone. Secondly, that we pray in deep humility before him. And thirdly, that we pray with full assurance in Christ. The first thing that God requires when it comes to prayer is really nothing other than the first commandment of the law. God says to us, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And now the catechism teaches us that when it comes to prayer, God requires that we pray to him alone and to no one else. And that we pray to him From the heart. So notice, first of all, this means we are to pray to God alone by faith in Him as the only true God. Consider Hebrews 11, verse 6, the next chapter. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God in prayer must believe that He is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Those who do not believe in God as the one true God cannot 
come to him and please him with their prayers. Only those who believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This morning I want to warn us, not because I believe that there's a danger that I have noticed in our midst, but because it's a grave danger in our society today, I want to warn you and me of this modern idea that people of all religions pray to the same God. That's a very prevalent idea in our world today. That every single person who folds his hands and closes his eyes and utters words of prayer is praying to the same person, to the same being, to the same God. And that God is pleased with those prayers. That's not true. The scriptures make that abundantly plain. In the Old Testament, was God pleased when people prayed to Baal and Asherah? When the prophets of Baal prayed to Baal to bring down fire on Mount Carmel and to burn up their sacrifice? Was God pleased when they went to the groves of Ashtaroth and prayed to the sex and fertility goddess? Was God pleased when they went into the temples of Zeus and Aphrodite and Greece and prayed to these idols? No. God was displeased with those prayers. God counted those prayers an abomination to him because they prayed to idol gods. And if that was true in the Bible times, and if God is an unchanging God, then isn't that still true today? Isn't it still true that God despises the prayers of those who pray to other gods? Those who gather in the lavishly beautiful temples to Buddha and to the pantheon of Hindu gods and who bow down and pray to them. Those who gather in the beautiful Roman Catholic cathedrals and put their hands on the statues of Mary and the saints and pray to them. Those who pray to their dead ancestors. Can it be said that God is pleased with those prayers and that all of those prayers are ultimately working their way up to heaven into God's ears and that he hears them? The Catechism teaches us that's not true. This modern idea is a false idea. It's a very devilish idea. The Muslims do not pray to the same God that we pray to. The Hindus do not. The Buddhists do not. The Jews do not either. Many people would perhaps say, well, the gods of the Hindus and the Buddhists and the other religions are obviously false, but the God of the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians is the same God. We all pray to the same God. And maybe someone would even say, okay, the God of the Muslims is not, but the God of the Jews and the God of the Christians is certainly the same God. We pray to Jehovah. We all pray to the same God, don't we? But the Jews reveal that they do not pray to the same God that we do by this fact that when this God came into the world, when Jehovah, in the person of his Son, took on human flesh in our Lord Jesus Christ and lived and walked on this earth, the Jews rejected him. The Jews did not believe in him. And the Jews, in all of the centuries since that time, unless they're converted to Christianity, 
continue in their unbelief and rejection of Jehovah who came in the person of Jesus to this world for our salvation. And they revealed by that unbelief that they pray to a different God. What about the hundreds, the thousands of modern people who live all around us, right here in our town too, who do not read the scriptures, who do not believe the gospel, who say that they're not religious, but who claim to be spiritual, who do not go to the Lord's house on the Sabbath day, but every once in a while they fold their hands and close their eyes and pray, and they claim that they're praying to God. Are they praying to the same God as us? No, they're not. They're praying to a God of their own making. They're praying to an idea of God according to their own desires. The God to whom they pray is a God who will help them when they have needs, but the rest of the time just leaves them alone to do whatever they want to do. This is not the holy God of Scripture. This is not the righteous God of the Bible. This is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's another God. God is not pleased with those prayers. God requires that we pray to him alone, that is, to him who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Israelites of the Old Testament, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who manifests himself so clearly in the Scriptures. He requires that we pray to him. And he requires that we pray to him from the heart. Catechism says that I, from the heart, pray to the one true God. And when the Catechism says that God requires us to pray to him from the heart, the idea is from a believing heart. Like we saw in Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God is not pleased with the prayers that rise up out of hearts which have no faith in them. He's not pleased with the prayers of unbelievers. And you say, well, unbelievers don't pray. Well, unbelievers do pray sometimes. And you say, why would an unbeliever pray? Well, sometimes unbelievers pray just because they were brought up to pray when they were children. And by the sheer force of habit, they continue to pray. Sometimes unbelievers pray because they are pretending to be Christians. They want people to think that they are Christians. So they put on the show of praying, but they're not actually Christians. Sometimes people pray because they want to please their parents. Their parents are Christians, and they want their parents to be pleased with them, so they put on a show of praying, but there is not even a mustard seed worth of faith in their hearts. Some people pray, perhaps, as a sort of insurance policy, a spiritual backup plan, 
just in case there is a God, they pray once in a while. But those are not prayers that please God. Those prayers that rise out of a heart which is void of faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. And what a dreadful lie and what dreadful hypocrisy it is. Those who pray, but who don't even believe in the one to whom they pray. How could God really be pleased with a prayer that rises out of a heart of a person who denies his existence? Who rejects his power? Who wants nothing to do with his gospel? and his Savior, and his Christ. Oh yes, God hears those prayers, but he doesn't listen to them. But what about us Christians? Don't we sometimes struggle with unbelief? Don't we sometimes struggle with doubts? Aren't we sometimes faithless as well? And isn't our faith often very weak? Sure, sure it is. Often our faith is weak. Often we struggle with doubts and questions and fears and we find ourselves to be faithless. And so we might ask the question, well, does the catechism mean then that our faith has to reach a certain level, that our faith has to grow to a certain point, a certain point of strength, a certain point of depth, a certain point of breadth, of certainty, of confidence. And only when we reach that level of faith will God hear our prayers and listen to us and grant our petition. Certainly not. Certainly that's not what the Catechism is saying. Our Lord Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 17, verse 20, For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, Ye shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. There must be faith in the heart, be it ever so small, even as a grain of mustard seed, because God will not Listen to the prayers of unbelievers. Now we know that God himself is the author of faith and the finisher of faith. God is the one who gives us faith. We who have faith in our hearts. We who are true, genuine believers in our hearts. And we know that God is the one who strengthens our faith. He preserves our faith. He builds our faith. And how does he do that? Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the call of the gospel. God comes to us and says, My children, believe. Believe. Have faith. And he comes to us with the warnings of the gospel. He warns us, Do not be faithless. Do not be unbelieving. And he comes to us with the rebukes of the gospel. Like in Matthew 15, verse 8, where the Lord Jesus said, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, 
and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He brings that rebuke to us. And it's through those warnings, through those rebukes, through that preaching, that our gracious Heavenly Father builds up our faith. And as He builds up our faith, as He brings us to repentance for our unbelief, we grow in our prayer life as well. As we grow in faith, we grow in prayer. And it's all the work of God in us and through us. God requires that we pray to him alone from a believing heart for all things he has commanded us to ask of him. The catechism there teaches us and the scriptures teach us God does not hear the prayers of those who ask for the things which they desire that he has not commanded us to ask, that he has not permitted us to ask for. God is not pleased with prayers for things which he doesn't promise to give us. But God promises us to give us things. And those are primarily spiritual things. We're going to see as we look through the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer that there are physical things. There's one petition for earthly physical things, and that's for something very simple and very basic, daily bread. We're permitted to ask for that, and God promises to give it to us. The rest of the petitions are for spiritual things. And as Jesus said, ask and you will receive, just as a child asks his father for bread, and his father will certainly give it to him. So those who ask for the Holy Spirit, God will surely give it to them. We saw that last time, and we'll see that as we look through each of the petitions. So that, in the first place, is what God requires when it comes to prayer. That's what he calls us as his children to when we pray. In the second place, the Catechism teaches us that when we pray, God requires us that we rightly and thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may deeply humble ourselves in the presence of his divine majesty. In short, God hates the prayers of the proud. But he inclines his ear to the prayers of the humble. Psalm 10, verse 17. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. James 4, verse 6, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace 
to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. God requires of us as his children that we come to him with humility, not in pride, that we come with a contrite heart, that we come with a broken spirit, that we come to him as those who rightly know our need and misery. Our Lord teaches us the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And as we all know from that parable, the Pharisee goes up into the temple to pray. And when he prays, claiming to be a believer, claiming to be humble, the words that come out of his mouth are something like, Lord, I thank thee that I am not like other men. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. I don't kill. I give tithes of all of my possessions. I thank thee, Lord, that I am such a wonderful person. And you see in that prayer, this outward appearance, this guise of humility. I thank thee, Lord, that I am so wonderful. But what that prayer was in reality was simply a man congratulating himself in the presence of others in an outwardly pious fashion. God despises that kind of prayer. We remember the publican in that parable who goes up into the temple to pray as well and goes into a far-off corner where nobody will see him or hear him. And lowering his head, he beats his breast and says, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that man went home justified. God requires that we rightly know our need and misery when we come to him in prayer. Do you know your need and misery? Are you able to go home today and to list one by one your needs? your miseries, your troubles, your sins, your specific sins, your specific weaknesses, your specific failures. Am I able to do that? Or like the Pharisee, do we tend to think that we're pretty good? We're all right. We're doing everything that we're called to do. We're living the life as we are to live it, exactly and perfectly. Do we rightly and thoroughly know our need, our sins, the sins that we commit, and our miseries? Do we feel that we have sins? Do we feel that we have miseries? Do we feel that we have needs? Or do we feel that we have 
all that we could possibly need, and all that's left is just to live a pleasureful, treasureful life here on this earth until at last we go to glory. Do we think that this life is just about having as much good, fun times as possible? Or do we understand our miseries? That we have miseries. Misery. If we don't recognize our sins, then we won't recognize our misery. If we don't recognize our weaknesses, we don't recognize our need for God. Then we don't think we need God. Then why bother to pray? But when we come to rightly and thoroughly know our needs, our sins, our miseries, we humble ourselves. We become of a contrite spirit, of a broken heart. The proud think that they have no need for God. And if they pray then, they don't pray because they think they need God. They don't pray because they have any real requests to bring to him. They are quite confident they can accomplish everything that they need by themselves, by their own strength and by their own power. The humble are those who know better. The humble are those who know how sinful we are, how weak we are, how needy we are, who know that we don't have the strength to do it. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. We're terribly weak. We're desperately sinful. And our enemies rise up against us day after day and tempt us and assault us and cease not to assault us. And we feel that we can't even stand for a moment, for a single moment, against those attacks and assaults and temptations of our enemy. And we know how easily we can fall into sin and how unworthy we are of his blessing. How unworthy we are of his grace. How incapable we are of taking a single step in the Christian life, a single step toward heaven. The humble when they come to God, cry out to him. And as we read the Psalms, we read the prayers of God's humble people. They cry out to him from a broken heart and a contrite spirit, knowing their needs, their sins, their struggles, their trials, their afflictions, their sorrows. The humble come to God and cry out, Oh God, I am so weak. I'm so sinful. I cannot save myself. I cannot pull myself up. I cannot do what is right. I cannot overcome these sins. Be merciful to me. Be merciful, O oh God. Be merciful. Hear my prayer. Incline thine ear to thy servant. But are we not sometimes proud like the Pharisee? And do we not often feel that we are quite self-sufficient? Of course. Does the catechism then mean to say that we have to reach a certain level of humility? before God will hear our prayers. No. 
That's not what the catechism is saying. But the catechism is saying that those who have no faith in their hearts, which are the same who come to God in terrible, dreadful pride, he will not hear. He only hears the prayers of believers, of his children, those in whom he works faith and those in whom he works humility. God gives humility to his children. You know, humility is almost of the essence of faith. If you think of what faith is, faith is renouncing myself and trusting in God. Faith is saying, I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. I can't do it. I can't. God can, and I look to him. I trust in him. I rely upon him. That's humility. Admitting that I can't. The proud won't admit that I can't. And that's sometimes us too. By the grace of God who works faith in our hearts, we do admit, I can't. I need thee, Lord. I need thee. For the preaching of his gospel. God requires humility when we pray. And that includes not only personal humility, but also national humility, denominational humility, and every other kind of humility. God is not pleased with the prayers of those who come to him with personal pride about themselves or those who come to him with some national pride as if we as a nation are better than other nations and in that puffed up spirit we come before the throne of grace. Nor is he pleased with those who come with denominational pride. We think that our denomination is better than every other denomination. That we are the best We are the purest. We are the greatest. That we have no need of reformation. That we have no need of correction. That we have no need of growth. That we will never fall. God hears the prayers of those who have a contrite spirit and a humble heart. Those who know that we are dust. We don't deserve anything. We're not worthy of anything. We're not better than anybody. We haven't done anything to achieve, to accomplish anything. All that we have is from God. All of it. God works that humility in us sometimes. Sometimes by chastening us. Sometimes he has to beat that pride out of us. And that hurts. But it's for our good. Oh, is it for our good. It's good to be humbled. It's good to be humble. It's good to be broken down, to have ourselves broken down so that God may be magnified in us. So that we may come to see his grace is sufficient. That in our weakness, his power is magnified. In the third place, God requires 
that when we pray, we be fully persuaded that even though we are not worthy of it, God will, for the sake of Christ our Lord, certainly hear our prayer. And that's what we read in Hebrews chapter 10. When the apostle has finished describing the glory and the beauty of Christ throughout the book of Hebrews, the theme of that book is the superiority for our sins on the cross, that Christ came into the world and said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. God is not pleased with all these sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament. But Christ came to offer himself once and for all. And oh, how beautiful and how glorious is Christ. And through the shedding of his blood on the cross, he has made for us a new and living way into the most holy place. There, the apostle calls to mind that vivid imagery of the Old Testament, the temple, which had the holy place and the most holy place, and only the priests could go into the temple, and only the high priest could go into the most holy place through the veil. He had to pass through that thick veil to go in by the Ark of the Covenant once per year. But when Jesus died on the cross, that, rail, that veil ripped right down the middle, ripped in two, and fell to the ground. And there the way was opened into the most holy place, into the throne room of God, right into his presence. And the apostle says, and that veil that ripped in two, that was a picture of his flesh. His flesh that was ripped and torn and broken on the cross, his flesh that he gave to be broken, torn up for us, for our sins, which he laid down as a sacrifice, an atonement, in order to open up that living way into the presence of God. Christ, through his cross, has done that. He's done that for us. There's nothing that we've done. There's nothing that we can do to make our way into the most holy place. Christ did it. He ripped that veil in two. And then he ascended up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And so the apostle says, Therefore, having boldness, let us come. Having boldness, verse 19, let us enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, through his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, sitting there at the right hand of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. We draw near. God requires us to draw near. He exhorts us to draw near with full assurance of faith. When we say humility, we don't mean shyness. When we say humility, we don't mean timidity or uncertainty. Humility 
broken, contrite, and boldness, confidence. We enter in, we draw near with boldness. And that boldness is in Christ. It's a confidence in Christ. Any other boldness is pride and arrogance and haughtiness. Anyone who barges into the presence of God, trusting in himself, in his own flesh, in his own strength, in his own works, in his own worth, that's an abomination. But those who enter, who step, who walk boldly into the presence of God in the name and for God in the gospel gives us the confidence to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us that in John 16, 23 and 24. One of his last words to the disciples before his death. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Ask. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. We must not come into the presence of God with a sense and an attitude of entitlement, with a sense and an attitude of self-confidence, with a natural assertiveness and boldness. But we must come into the presence of God with boldness because of Christ Christ alone, and by faith in him alone. That's what God requires when it comes to prayer. And God requires us to pray that way in our personal lives, in our family lives, also in the gathering together of the saints. Notice the last verse that we read, Hebrews 10, verse 25. Let me just start at verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. So there, be strong in your faith. Hold fast to your faith. Don't waver, for he is faithful. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Let us encourage each other in the congregation as brothers and sisters in Christ Let us be considerate of each other. Let us encourage each other. Let us say, brother, sister, let's go to the house of God. Let's go to the house of prayer together. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Many in our land today are flocking out of the churches, forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That was true then. That's still true today. Perhaps more so today. People who once prayed, pray no more. People who once went to church, go to church no more. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And let us remember, rather, that when we assemble together on the Lord's Day, after the preaching of the Word of God, one of the chief elements of our service is that together we unite our hearts in prayer. 
and we draw near into the presence of our God. Let's do that. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we give thee thanks for the gift of prayer. We give thee thanks for instruction in prayer. We thank thee for exhortations and teaching in regard to how we ought to pray. We thank thee for the Lord Jesus Christ, who through the shedding of his precious blood has made a new and living way into the presence of the Most Holy. Grant, Father, that we might grow in prayer, as we grow in faith, as we grow in humility, as we grow in boldness. Grant that we might love to pray, that we might pray without ceasing, that we might pray with fervency, that we might love that time in which in our private lives, in our congregational life, we have the privilege to bow our knees, fold our hands, and enter into thy presence, to pour out our hearts to thee, and to hear, to know that thou dost hear us, and thou dost answer us, and that thou wilt grant unto us all that we pray for in faith, those things which thou dost command us to ask. Give us thy grace and Holy Spirit, and send us home this day like the publican, justified, having the confidence that we are right with thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.